Pepsi's head of global operations, Don Kendall, scans the room. It's July, 1959, and he's at a reception in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. Kendall's waiting for the right moment to approach the guest of honor, Vice President Richard Nixon. Tomorrow, Nixon will be showing Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev around the American National Exhibition. The exhibition is a showcase of all things American. It's designed to ease tensions with the USSR and show the merits of capitalism. Nearly 450 American companies are showcasing their products. Pepsi wasn't supposed to be here. The U.S. government invited Coca-Cola. But Coke wants nothing to do with the USSR, not after years of being vilified as capitalist dogs. So like many Americans in the 1950s, the State Department opted for the next best thing and invited Pepsi. Kendall thought this was a fantastic opportunity. His bosses disagreed. Eventually, they gave in and let him go to Moscow, but with a caveat. If he didn't return with something big from his trip, he needn't bother coming back. And that's why Kendall needs Nixon. Finally, Kendall sees his chance and moves in. Mr. Vice President, it's a pleasure to meet you. I'm Don Kendall from Pepsi-Cola. Good to meet you. I'm very pleased Pepsi's here with us. You must be looking forward to seeing what the Russians think of Pepsi. I sure am, but I'm worried, too. I'm sure they'll love Pepsi, just as we all do. Oh, no, uh, that, that's not what I'm worried about. Y you see, my bosses didn't want Pepsi to be here. Now I have to prove it was worthwhile or I'm out of a job. Uh, say, could I ask a favor? Uh, please, go, go right ahead. Uh, could, uh, could you bring Khrushchev to the Pepsi kiosk tomorrow? It helped me out a lot. Consider it done. See you tomorrow. Nixon keeps his word. The next day, he leads Khrushchev to Pepsi-Cola's stand. Kendall quickly hands the Soviet leader an ice-cold Pepsi, and Khrushchev raises it to his lips. Photographers capture the moment. And the next day, the image of Nikita Khrushchev drinking Pepsi-Cola appears in newspapers across the world. Eventually, the company strikes a deal with the Soviets. Trouble is... The ruble is pretty much worthless outside the USSR. So they barter. Pepsi for vodka, which Pepsi sells in the U.S. Breaking into the USSR is a rare coup for Pepsi. In fact, Pepsi might be bigger than ever, but it still lives in Coca-Cola's shadow. It's still the other cola. The kitchen cola that housewives pass off as the real thing to unsuspecting guests. What Pepsi needs is its own identity, a way to set itself apart from Coca-Cola. But all that is about to change. Pepsi is focusing on the younger generation, and they can't take their eyes off their TV sets. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars.
You are listening to Episode 4 in our Pepsi vs. Coca-Cola series, The Imitator's Revenge. In our last episode, Coca-Cola followed American GIs into World War II and won the loyalty of millions of veterans. Pepsi was frozen out of the wartime action, and things were rough on the home front, too. Sugar was rationed during the war, forcing Pepsi to raise prices, and that was a clean kill of its hugely successful twice-as-much-for-a-nickel campaign. Now, Pepsi is searching for a foothold, maybe a new identity, one that looks toward the future. It's 1960, on Madison Avenue, New York City. Inside the offices of advertising agency BBDO, the Pepsi ad team is talking strategy. The agency just won the account to turn things around for Pepsi. The sales director lays out the challenge. Coca-Cola outsells Pepsi six to one. Many people grew up with Coke back when Pepsi wasn't an option or started drinking Coca-Cola because it went the extra mile for our troops. We're fighting against a drink that's embedded in daily life because of its past successes. Pepsi needs... Hold up. Hold, hold up. Everyone in the room turns to look up at Alan Potash. He's Pepsi's suave but irrepressible advertising chief. You said Coca-Cola's past successes. That's it. We're focusing on the wrong people. We've been talking about people born before the war, but what about those born after it? They're the biggest generation ever. 70 million teenagers and young adults. What about them? One of the agency's copywriters leaps in. You're right. Those teenagers aren't like their parents. You only have to look at Elvis Presley to know that. They grew up in boom times, not the days of World War and the Dust Bowl. They're optimistic. They're too young to be loyal to Coca-Cola. Potash grins. Exactly. We should present Pepsi as the cola for the young. Pepsi is new. Coca-Cola is for has-beens. The team runs with the idea. They create TV ads based around a new slogan. Now it's Pepsi for those who think young. So go ahead and take the drink that lets you drink young as you think. You get the right one. The modern light one, now it's Pepsi, for those who think young. But the ads don't connect. Pepsi sales, flatline. So in early 1963, the team regroups in Madison Avenue for a second try. And Potash thinks he knows the solution. We need to focus on the consumer, not the product. We should show people what they aspire to be. And guess what? Those people are drinking Pepsi. So Pepsi is a lifestyle, not a cola. Not focusing on the product? This is advertising heresy in 1963. But Pepsi is in a daring mood. It's willing to gamble if that could deliver a breakthrough in the cola war. Viewers get closer when this pops up on their TV sets. Come alive. You're in the Pepsi generation. They watch a blonde woman, her hair whipping in the wind on the back of a motorcycle driven by a handsome man. The music is snappy. The commercial is exciting. By comparison, Coke's ads seem downright old school. More Pepsi generation ads follow. Scenes of happy teenagers playing football on the beach, young couples hurtling around Disneyland on a roller coaster, attractive young people in swimsuits leaping into lakes, 
With each one, Pepsi's sales rise and rise, and so does the mark Pepsi's leaving on popular culture. Though the phrase baby boomer hasn't been invented yet, the soda maker hands the media a perfect description, the Pepsi generation. Coca-Cola, which used to dismissively call Pepsi the imitator, is startled by Pepsi's sudden breakthrough. And it's getting harder to ignore Pepsi. Coke thinks it gets what Pepsi's trying to do and puts on a good game face with its ads. But in Coke's ads, teenagers just sit on beaches guzzling Coke. Pepsi shows young girls and boys crashing through waves playing touch football. Now, which ad would you want to be in? The unspoken subtext is this. Coca-Cola people are stayed. Pepsi drinkers are having all the fun. And when they wink at you, they're inviting you in. Still, Coca-Cola's not too worried, at least not yet. It knows Pepsi's only chasing the young because it can't win over older customers. Coke also knows Pepsi can't match its advertising budget. Coca-Cola's the most advertised product in all of America. But as the 1970s begin, Coke feels Pepsi drawing even with it in retail sales. Coke can no longer ignore Pepsi. Coke needs a new message. That's the reason they've turned to Bill Backer. Backer is an executive at the ad agency that promotes Coke, McCann Erickson. He's on the red eye to London to work on a new jingle. But shortly before Final Descent, the pilot makes an announcement. Sorry, folks, this is your flight deck speaking. I've got some bad news. London's covered in heavy fog, and so we can't land there. We're being diverted to Limerick, Ireland. It's going to be an overnight stay while we wait for the fog to clear. We'll give you an update as soon as we can. Grumbles echo through the plane. But on landing, the discontent explodes into fury. The airlines booked rooms at a local motel, but there's not enough rooms for everyone. People will have to share. Passengers and airline staff lay into each other bitterly. Everybody goes to bed in a foul mood. The next morning, when Backer enters the airport, he's stunned. In the airport restaurant, the passengers are smiling and laughing with one another. And most of them are drinking Coke. Inspired by what he's witnessing, Backer grabs a napkin and jots down some vague thoughts about Coke being a product that brings people together. By the time Backer finally meets his songwriters in London, he's got a new brief for them. I want a song that treats the world as a person, a person that the singer wants to help and get to know. Backer recovers his crumpled napkin from his pocket and reads out some of his ideas. Coca-Cola is a social thing, bringing people together in hard times. Oh, wait, wait, this one is one I really like. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. The songwriters pen a folksy tune, but when Backer plays the song to Coca-Cola's bosses in Atlanta, it doesn't go down well. Coke executive Paul Austin is cringing as he listens. Ugh, that's sickly. So, so sentimental. Backer doesn't give ground. Mr. Austin, 
This is what the world needs right now. We've had presidents assassinated. Vietnam's tearing the country apart. People are rioting. This is a message of hope. People need some hope. Austin's not convinced, but he shrugs. Personally, I hate it. But we hired an ad agency for a reason. Go make an ad out of it. Backer and his team plot out a commercial where a chorus of young people stand on a hilltop, Coca-Cola's in hand, singing together. Then they head to England to shoot it. They gather more than a thousand young people on the white cliffs overlooking the English Channel, arm them with Cokes, and then the heavens open. Rain lashes down, soaking everyone to the skin. The shoot's ruined. So they try again. Next stop, the hills near Rome, Italy. But this time, things go even worse. Hundreds of teenagers are bussed in, but the producer refuses to let them out until the shoot is ready. And it's hot as blazes inside the bus. By the time the teenagers are released, they're hot and angry and thirsty. They demand to drink the Cokes. The film crew says no, they need the colas for the shoot. By the time the helicopter is circling the scene, trying to film the ad's crucial end shot, the teenagers are in full revolt. They grab their Coca-Cola bottles and hurl them at the helicopter. Then they race down the hilltop and try to tip over the Coca-Cola truck parked at the bottom. Fed up with the rebellious teenagers, the director quits on the spot. It's another write-off. Coke moves on to shoot number three, also in Italy, but this time with a smaller group of singers. And it all goes well. But the executives at Coca-Cola are unhappy with the bill. The failed shoots have sent costs spiraling out of control. The ads cost $250,000 to make. It's the most expensive commercial ever shot. But in 1971, the Hilltop ad with its cast of ethnically diverse singers finally airs. I like to teach the world to sing. Sing with me. Why it's huge. The ad's message of hope and unity resonates big time. Tens of thousands of people write into Coca-Cola to thank the company for creating such an uplifting commercial. The song even races up the pop charts. The ad becomes one of the most iconic commercials ever made. It's so enduring that it actually plays a starring role in the finale of the TV series Mad Men more than 40 years later. But as Coca-Cola basks in the acclaim, Pepsi's attention is elsewhere. Pepsi marketing vice president John Scully is telling his fellow executives about some interesting market research he commissioned. We held some blind taste tests, simple tests. Pepsi or Coca-Cola, which do you prefer? That is, if you don't know which is which. Here's the thing. More people prefer Pepsi to Coke if they don't know what they're drinking. But if they do know, more people pick Coke over Pepsi. Now, surely there's got to be a way we can use that to attack Coke, right? 
And there is, if you know exactly where the jugular is. It's spring, 1972, and Pepsi Vice President Larry Smith is getting desperate. He's in a small office in Texas trying to persuade the boss of a Dallas grocery store chain to stock Pepsi. The owner of the chain is not budging. No and no again, we ain't going to be stocking Pepsi. Come on, seriously, we're the second biggest soft drink in America. We're neck and neck with Coca-Cola in supermarket sales. How can you even consider not offering your customers Pepsi? Mister, you're in Texas. Now here, Pepsi ain't the number two soda. That's Dr. Pepper. There's a reason folks in Texas call Cola Coke. It's because as far as folks here are concerned, there's only one cola. You get me? Well, Smith knows the man's right. Pepsi lags behind Coke in most states below the Mason-Dixon line, but the situation in Texas is especially dire. Pepsi holds just 8% of the Texas soda market. That's miles behind Dr. Pepper, let alone Coca-Cola. Smith figures it's time to offer some incentives. Okay, okay, how about this? You stock Pepsi, and we will pay for advertising that mentions your stores. We will also do in-store promotions to get your customers buying Pepsi. Now, that's a great deal. Free advertising and promotion just to put Pepsi on your shelves. The store owner leans back into his chair. That you are willing to give me all that just to put drinks in my stores kind of tells me everything I need to know about how well Pepsi's going to sell. Forget it. We ain't stocking Pepsi. On the flight back to New York, Smith mulls over Pepsi's Texas problem. See, Pepsi is so, so close to overtaking Coca-Cola in retail sales that even minor gains in places like Texas could deliver victory. But the Pepsi lifestyle ads that work so well elsewhere deliver Jack in Texas. Smith thinks Pepsi needs to do something different to win over the southern states, something more aggressive, confrontational even. A couple of days later, Smith meets with Pepsi's marketing chiefs and its ad agency. He proposes they take a whole new approach to promotion in the Lone Star State. I think we should do a comparison ad. Pepsi versus Coca-Cola. I mean, we already know from our blind taste test that more people prefer the taste of Pepsi. We just need to brand that message home. One of the ad agency men shakes his head. No way, no way. Comparison ads often backfire. Now, if Coca-Cola hits back, this thing could get real ugly. If we start attacking each other directly, both us and Coca-Cola could lose sales. And that would undermine our national message. Pepsi is about being positive and optimistic. Now, that message works. Just look at the gains we've made since the Pepsi generation campaign. But Smith isn't going to give up. As the boss of Pepsi's company-owned bottling plants... Smith's got his own marketing budget to play with. So, he pays another ad agency to create a one-off promotion just for Texas. The result is the Pepsi Challenge, a TV ad campaign where everyday people do a Pepsi versus Coke taste test. After they pick their favorite cola, the identity of each drink is revealed. The payoff is the shocked reactions of lifelong Coke drinkers who never thought they'd pick a Pepsi. In 1975, 
The first Pepsi Challenge ad airs in Dallas and boosts Pepsi's market share from 4 to 14%. After seeing those figures, Pepsi takes the campaign national. Soon, the Pepsi Challenge is rolling through city after city, leaving a trail of stunned Coca-Cola drinkers in its wake. All across America, people are taking the Pepsi Challenge. In California, here's what they're saying. Pepsi really is the better drink. Proven to myself now that I like Pepsi better. Nationwide, more people prefer the taste of Pepsi over Coca-Cola. I think today's test was very honest. Pepsi has... The campaign works wonders. In 1977, Pepsi replaces Coca-Cola as the number one cola in retail sales nationwide. Coke's still ahead in vending machine and restaurant sales, but this news sparks panic in Coca-Cola's Atlanta headquarters. Outraged by Pepsi direct attacks, Coca-Cola first challenges its competitors' claims. Then, Coke switches tactics by running commercials that spoof the Pepsi challenge. Now, if you'll just choose. Hey, this test is silly. I take a lot of tests. You see, I'm statistically perfect. White friend. Neither approach works. In 1978, key Coca-Cola executives gather to debate what else they can do to try to derail the Pepsi challenge. We've got to stop these ads. We've got to. They are now ahead in retail sales. If they stay on top, we could start losing fast food chains to them. We can't let this continue. But no one in the room has any idea how to stop it. At this point, Roberto Goisueta speaks up. He's the head of Coca-Cola's technical division the man who oversees the Coca-Cola recipe, the fabled secret formula. I've run some taste tests myself. Pepsi's not lying. People do tend to prefer Pepsi. That is, if they just take a single sip. We do better after a whole cup, though. The Coca-Cola executives sit in stunned silence. It's never really occurred to them that more people might prefer Pepsi to Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola's the real thing, the original cola. Pepsi's just an imitator. How could Pepsi be better? Doubts crawl into the minds of Coca-Cola's top brass. Maybe they've got it wrong. Maybe it's Coca-Cola that's the problem. Could it be that they have to change the drink? In the next episode of Coke vs. Pepsi... We head into the 1980s as Pepsi seeks help from the king of pop and Coca-Cola tries to stop Pepsi's advance with the most daring product change in its history. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Business Wars and we invite you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio or wherever fine podcasts are served. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll also see some offers from our sponsors, and we hope you'll support our show by supporting them. Now, if you like what you've heard, we'd love for you to give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe. Another way you can support us is to answer a short survey at wondery.com survey. And don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. A quick note about the conversations you've been hearing. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. He's the author of Fizz, How Soda Shook Up the World. 
Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Jenny Lauer is our producer. Sound design by Bay Area Sound. Marsha Louie is the executive producer, and Business Wars was created by Hernan Lopez. For Wondering.